like, like off, down. <laughs> Open the windows, the doors. I mean, it's ridiculous hot in here. I was wondering who else was feeling this way. I'm glad everybody's on the same page. So I woke up on the pounding headache side of the bed this morning and still working it out. We'll get there. You know it's a bad one when you, you take five Motrin and it still hasn't hit yet. Let's get to Vayishlach. Today, I'm not going to, I was supposed to teach last week, and obviously we were off because we got hit with a wave of the world's ridiculousness, and so we decided to, in an abundance of caution, make sure that everyone else that was exposed to each other uh, didn't get it as well, and it looks good, so we decided to go ahead and have services again, but um, Leave it to the barons to get everyone sick, right? Um, so I have a teaching from last week that I'm going to go ahead and talk about because it's it's still relevant. I think this week the story's the story's just a, a continuation this week of the same one from last week, Jacob's Jacob's ladder, and going into um, what's going on this week. You see, you know, Esav and and Yaakov are having you know a little bit of a dispute. Uh, Yaakov's afraid of his brother Esau, who's a tough man, he's a tough guy, he's a bigger guy, um, decided to go to the land of Seir and make, uh, make a family with the, with the people of Edom and the Edomites. And, um, and as a result, he, he, you know, sent angel emissaries, angel messengers, is what the Torah kind of reflects. And if you read the Jewish text, it'll say that he sent angel messengers to uh, to talk to Esav, um, and you know, Esav had 400, 400 men to come to battle against uh, Yaakov. He was mad at his brother. He, took, he said, you took my birthright, you took everything from me, uh, which I was supposed to have, and I'm going to restore it to myself. So, you know, Yaakov is smart. You know, he's a smart man. He makes a decision. He says, well, I've got to I've got to, uh, I've got to stay this this violence that's coming from my brother. So how do I do it? I'm going to send him uh, a bunch of cattle and livestock and make him a richer man. So back in those days, uh, your wealth was defined by how much cattle you had, right? And then the size of your harem. Um, so here he's got this big wealth of uh, cattle that's going to him so he feels happy and excited about that and I think it stayed the it created peace and calm between the brothers um, but nonetheless it, it's been an interesting ride for Yaakov he's he's not a uh, it, it's not I think if you look at his life and you kind of study uh, Jacob I think you understand and see the the reality of what life is to be. You know, Jacob, Jacob's name has changed to Israel. 
The name Israel means to struggle. Right? So you, it's really a struggling environment. Right? We're strugglers, those of us who are part of Israel. Um, and it's funny because the environment is a furnace. And this morning while I was showering, I started to think about this teaching. And it's very hot in here. And, and I, I thought to myself, well, life is the furnace that all of us have to go through. The Bible talks about going through the furnace and having hay, stubble, and chaff burned away. A lot of us feel like that happens, you know, at the, at the end of, in judgment. You know, in judgment, he'll put us through the fiery furnace and the hay, stubble, and the chaff will be burned away from us and we'll be made pure. I think life is partly that furnace. You know, you, you come into life a rough stone. You have rough edges, right? And then as you, as you come into life, you, you get challenged by all the things that are around you. Jacob, he goes from Haran to Beersheba to Haran. Right? That whole journey that Jacob's going through, Haran is really the sin, the deceit, the selfishness, the, the, the place of the seed of, of deceit, really, with him and his, his mother, Rivka, who deceived their fa his father, Yaakov, I mean, uh, Itzchak, regardless of, regardless of whether or not God says to the... To, to, to Rivka, that the elder shall serve the younger, it still was, in fact, deceit. The whole relationship was deceit. But yet he's going through this life and through this furnace, and he's going, and he's going through all of these things that are happening, and he's got this hay, this stubble, and this chaff that it's all over him. And he's wrestling, and he's fighting, and he's continued to wrestle and fight. And you see him, he's even, he even wrestles the, the angel of God. His hip gets dislocated. Imagine his hips dislocated. Imagine after that fight, the struggle. His name was changed at that point because of that struggle. And he, he defeated the divine, it says that in the commentary. He defeats the divine when he, when he defeats that angel when he, when he fought him. The name changed to Israel. It, it reflects that struggle that he went through when he fought with this, with this angel. And, and it reflects that struggle that he had. And I would argue that probably for the rest of his life, he probably didn't walk the same. His hip's dislocated, and he probably had a trouble with that hip for the rest of his life. But what did that struggle, what did that reflect in his, in his life, that, that hip, the way he walked? He always remembered, he always was able to reflect upon that experience when his name was changed to Yaakov to Israel. And so here he is, he's got this time, this experience that he's going through, and he's going to always have it. He's going to have it with him forever. And it's one of those things that he looks back on. It's a lesson in life that he looks back on and he says, these things happen to make me who God has called me to be. And that's what happens throughout our lives. All these experiences, these lessons that we have in our life, the experiences that mold us into the human beings that we are meant to be, they prepare us to meet God and create a home for him here on this earth. If you're being prepared to meet God, what's, in actually, what's, what's actuality happening is that you are being purified. You're being purified while you're on earth. You don't realize that you are. You, you are. We're asking, we ask God all the time, 
Lord, purify me. Lord, make me holy. Lord, make me righteous. Well, he's doing so in your life experiences. He's showing you who to be, what not to be, what evil is, what wickedness is. Well, how, how does he show it to you? He shows it to you through the reading of his word, but not only the reading of his word, the experiences that you go through. You ever have an experience in life where you think to yourself, I, I should never have done that? Well, that's called purification. You, you, you're recognizing what God is calling you to be. He's, he's making you continually clean. And he's doing it by, by recognizing you recognizing his word and his truth. And then at the same time, when you go through life's experiences, you start to burn away that which is, that which is not holy and pure, and, and, and you become more holy and pure. You see things a lot differently. It's important for us to slow down and to stop and meditate on, on our own lives as it passes each of us by every single day. We do this to understand the culmination of the events that have occurred to us, that have shaped us. If we just let life grow older and race by without embracing the wisdom that births out of the experience that we're having, and then passing that wisdom on to the next generation, we're stealing from God. We're thieves. God is giving us everyday wisdom. He's giving us everyday knowledge of how we should be, and not only in our own lives and and as we get closer to the kingdom coming, he's giving us knowledge on how to live our lives, but at the same time, we're supposed to pass that knowledge on to the next generation so that it doesn't die. That's the culture that, that needs, needs to, to happen. If you look at the world today, just look around you. Think about the culture 50 years ago in the world, okay, outside of God. It was much different than it is today. The way children live today, the way they think, the encounters that they have, the friends that they make, what they do with their, with their time. Some of us, when we were young, if we would do half the things that these kids did, we'd be scared to death of our parents. Right? And then even the generation before that, there's no way you would because you're you know, I, I mean, I recall my grandpa telling me that his, his, his grandma would hit him upside the head with glass bottles. Knock him out if he did something wrong. Well, that's a different world, right? You'd have Karen running around, you know, <laughs> taking everyone to the police station. She's a social worker. It's a different world we live in today, right? I mean... And, and, and the way kids think and the way the human beings. But if we as a culture and as a people and as a body of believers, if we continue to inculcate God's presence and his power and what he requires of us into the, the next generations, it will stay strong. And they'll, they'll teach their children and then their children's children and then their children's children. How, how, how much more Jewish can that be? That's what we're required to do. Our children not only reflect who we are, they reflect who God is. 
And if your community, the children in your community, are not reflecting who God is, then your community is failing. The community has to be strong. So the the strength of the community is not in the elderly. The strength in the community is in the young. How strong is it? That's the push that needs to happen. But that's the focus as we get older. That's the focus of our lives. It's passing the information on to the next generation so that we can teach others also to build an abode for God here on the earth. And that's the real purpose of the, divi- of, the, of the divine mission that we have, building an abode for God on the earth so that God can interact with those who he needs to interact with. Somewhere, we must be robbing, we, we must, we must be robbing God. Because we would be treating our life as common. But those of us that are walking according to the purpose of him that created us must understand that no experience in life goes without a lesson to be learned and taught. In the parashah today, or last week, we began to learn from the experience of our patriarch and his signpost that was given to to us by God. It's a story that God gave us a message that God gave us from our patriarch. So the biography of Jacob as an independent personality begins with this parasha. This is where it really starts, last week's parasha. In the JPS Torah commentary, it explains that Jacob, the home-loving favorite of the overprotective mother, is now in exile. So he's the home-loving favorite of his overprotective mother. All of us have that, right? I was the home-loving favorite of my overprotective mother, for sure. All of us. And those of you who have sons, I'm looking at Ben. You're the favorite of your mother, and she's probably overprotective of you. That's normal, right? But some of us have... Have, a, have, a, have an experience like that, and we did. And so as you grow up and you become a man, you start to realize that, you know, I've got to be an individual, and you start wanting to become a man, and so you actually throw yourself into exile. You go out there on your own, and you say, I'm doing this. So here he is. He's in exile. He's utterly alone, levad, and friendless. He has no friends, and he embarks on this long perilous journey that's taking him from Beersheba into southern Canaan to Haran in northern Mesopotamia. Here he's on this journey. And his character is to be tested. He's to be refined. His personality is to be molded and transformed by the experience along his journey. This is the part This is the biography of Jacob. It begins right here. We start to see what's happening, how God's God's molding him. And unfortunately, the reality of it is is that most people that get moved by God have to go into exile before they're moved. That's a fact. You have to experience loneliness. You have to. There's a song, Levada al-Hagag. I love this song. I'm alone on a roof. Right? It's a great song, and it's, it's a song about, you know, really being there by yourself, and you have nothing, no one, and, and you have to have 
you have to have God there with you to show you and guide you. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a reality that I think no one really understands. But, but to be alone doesn't mean that you're not with people. You can also feel alone and be surrounded by others. And I want us all to understand that that loneliness, that to be, to, to be lonely and in exile in your own heart and in your mind is not something to be, is not something to be uh, looked at as depressing because it is in fact a journey toward refinement by God. Everyone says that I'm lonely, I'm so alone. We all go through those periods and those times. But there's one that sticks closer than a brother right there in that loneliness. And what is he doing for you? How is he refining you? What is he saying to you? What is he whispering in your ear as you sit there feeling alone? Understanding that we are not alone in this time but yet being refined while on earth. Looking at life as a furnace rather than looking at life as a struggle that we're just anticipating the, the future. This is a part of the future, understand that living and being here on earth is a part of Olam Haba. It is leading us toward Olam Haba, but without the experience here, we will never truly grasp the, the, the greatness of what Olam Haba will be. This is the furnace we begin to burn away the hay, the stubble, and the chaff. So Jacob's character, it's to be tested, it's to be refined in this furnace of life. And his personality molded. And he's supposed to be transformed along this journey. And it's interesting that we do not receive the details of the trials and the tribulations that Jacob experiences on the way to Haran, except for a singular event that creeps up on Jacob and sends him onto his back to find God, directing him in the course of his fathers. Breshit 28, 10-22 says that Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he lighted upon a certain place and tarried there all night because the sun was set and he took of the stones of that place and put them for his pillows and lay down in that place to sleep. Here already in verse 10, we find an interesting experience that Jacob's embarking on. He's leaving Beersheba in southern Canaan to travel to Haran. And in Genesis chapter 12, the Lord tells Jacob's grandfather. Who's Jacob's grandfather? Who? Avraham. Thank you. He tells Jacob's grandfather to leave Haran and take his family to Canaan where they would number as the sands of the sea and the stars in the sky. Isn't it funny that, that Jacob's grandfather was told to leave Haran and he's going to the very place his grandfather tells him to leave. So already Jacob's journey should cause you to question, what is he about to learn? What can I take from his experience? Because he's about to do something that God tells his grandfather to leave from. He's about to go somewhere. God tells his grandfather to leave. Where I'm going to bless you to. Go to Canaan and I will bless you there. 
leave Haran. Why? Because Haran was a terrible place. It was a sinful place. It was a deceitful place. It set up gods and idols for, you know, that, that rejected the one true God. Abraham's own father, Terah, poor guy, was a, was a carver of idols. Was a maker, a crafter of idols. But Abraham knew something different. He was very different, and he had this, he had this understanding that was deeper. And maybe Abraham had already experienced what he had to in Haran. And as a result of the experience that he had in Haran, God says, leave Haran and go to Canaan. But here, Jacob, born in a different world, has to learn the same thing his grandfather learned. And the only place to learn it is Haran. So God journeys him there, takes him there. And in verse 12 it says, he dreamed. And behold, a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God ascending and descending on it, and behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham thy father, and the God of Yitzchak, and the land whereon thou liest. To thee will I give it, and to thy seed. And thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and thou shalt spread abroad to the west, and to the east, and to the north, and to the south. And in thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And behold, I am with thee, and will keep thee in all places whither thou goest, and will bring thee into the land, for I will not leave thee until I have done that which I have spoken to thee of. The same exact blessing, the same exact message that goes to his grandfather, to his father, is now given to him individually. It wasn't that God said, this is interesting too, I mean, it wasn't that God said, I, I gave your, your grandfather a blessing because you're his seed, I'm giving it to you as well. I'm passing his blessing through you as a conduit. No, he's like literally says, I'm giving it to you. So the same exact blessing Abraham gets. He says, and thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and thou shalt spread abroad to the west and the east and the north and the south, and in thee thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with thee. I will keep thee in all thy places. He, he, it's directed to him as well. So they actually got the same blessing, the three of them. It's their own. Is it because he's Abraham's son, great grandson? I'm sure. But he had to do, he had to have that same spark inside of him that Abraham had in order to receive that blessing. It's not as if God was just going to give it to anyone. We know that for a fact because God said in the beginning, the elders shall serve the younger. He wasn't going to give it to Esau. It wasn't going to happen. Verse 16, and Jacob awakened out of his sleep and he said, surely the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not. And he was afraid. And he said, how dreadful is this place? I understand that, that feeling. I, I've had a dream before, and, I've had, and God was in my dream, and you wake up absolutely terrified, and you feel dreadful. 
Like, I totally get it. I remember, I've covered my face. I told you guys the story, I think, one time. Few of you probably remember. Shelly, I look at my sister, Michelle. I said, I just saw God. She's like, that's nice, Mikey. Go back to bed. But I had my face covered. I was totally afraid. I had to go to the bathroom. I didn't want to get up. I didn't want to go because I was afraid of what I would see after coming out of this dream. It was, it was terrifying. So I understand his feeling here. He says, how dreadful is this place? He has this experience. He sees God at the top of a ladder, and he sees these angels, these, these uh, malachim, going up and down, up and down on this ladder. This is none other but the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. That's interesting. The name, the name, the house of God is house is Beit El, Bethel, right? So he names this place Beit El. And it's the house of God and the gate of heaven. And Yaakov rose up early in the morning and took the stone that he had put for his pillows and set it up for a pillar, and he poured oil upon the top of it. And he called the name of that place Beit El. But the name of that city was called Luz at the first. And Jacob vowed a vow, saying, if God be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then shall the Lord be my God. The city was called Luz. Isn't that bone called the Luz bone? Your tailbone. I don't know if you guys know this, but the tailbone's called Luz bone, which is literally called considered the resurrection bone. The resurrection bone means that like if, if, if everything in your body is destroyed, if you just have the, two, the, the tailbone, you can recreate what was from the tailbone itself. I don't understand the science behind it, but there's science behind it. There's all the DNA that you would need to make your body. So, you know, there's an argument about cremation and people being cremated and, you know, how they come back. Well, if the loose bone is still around, which it could be, it doesn't get destroyed, you can, God can recreate what was from the very loose bone. It's just a theological debate. I don't know how true it is or not, but it is what it is. But it's called the loose bone, the resurrection bone. Interestingly, the city that was called... Uh, the city that was called Luz is also Beit El, or the house of God. The city that was called Luz is also the place where the gate of heaven is. So interestingly, that which is called Luz on a man's body or a woman's body is the same place where the resurrection happens. Isn't it funny? Wouldn't it make sense that the house of God would be where we have resurrection? I don't know. I'm just trying to correlate the two. But it's an interesting statement. But this stone, which I have set for a pillar, shall be God's house, and all of that thou shalt give me, I will surely give the tenth unto thee. So Yaakov is traveling alone, and he meets God along his journey, and God provides him this personalized promise, the same personalized promise that he did to his father Abraham. He memorializes the site, he names it, and he makes a vow to God. There was a pattern here. 
He gets this personalized promise. He memorializes what occurred by establishing a pillar, and he makes a vow. And it's believed that Jacob was amazed at God's presence in that place that he slept. And the statement, the surely the Lord is in this place, initiates a sense of surprise. Surely the Lord was in this place. He was surprised to meet God at that place. See, here we see that Jacob was fearful of the experience. He's shaken up by his encounter, and which can be explained by the way that he had treated his father and his brother previously. And it's interesting to note that either Abraham or Yitzchak had their, this reaction of surprise, at, that, that neither of them had this reaction of surprise as, at God's initial self-revelation to them. Neither of them were surprised to meet God when they met God. But for whatever reason, Yaakov was, and he was fearful. And it's said that Yaakov was beset with feelings of complete and deserved abandonment by God and man. He had fallen prey to guilty and solitary despair and was surprised by the fact that God still had interest in him. This is the belief of the rabbis. He's at this place in his own life that he thinks God has just completely abandoned him. If you think about it, read the story in advance, you know, prior to. He's at war with his brother. His father is probably, was probably super angry with him over the fact that he deceived him the way he did. His life was a mess. He didn't know where he was going. He didn't know what he was doing, what his purpose was, and he's completely beside himself. He's Levat, Al-Hagag. And because of the way he treated his father and brother, he, he felt terribly alone. He didn't have anyone there to protect him any longer. And so he makes a vow that if God would keep him safe along his journey, that he would come back to his father's house in peace, then he would give to God a tenth of all he had. Now it's interesting that his journey is taking him away to Haran, right? It's, he's, there's something going on there in his personal life that he's leaving where, where God put, you know, sent his grandfather and you know, said that I'm going to build something with you here. He's leaving that and going actually backwards. And why is he doing it? And I can imagine it. I mean, we're all young at one point, and we were all trying to figure things out, and we were like, you know what, forget it. I'm going to go do this. And you, you, know, you throw things down, and you say what you're going to be. And I'm sure that Yaakov is going through some of this right now, right? His personality. This is his biography. It's the beginning of trying to understand what motions that were happening there. But, but who, who, how God can use Yaakov in life is, is pretty interesting. You should reflect on it and say, well, if he can use him, he can use me. So here he is. He makes his vow. They'll keep him safe along the journey. They'll give a tenth back to him. But the dream in the place called Bethel did not keep him from moving forward on his journey. It didn't stop him. It didn't say to him, turn around and go back from where you came from. He just kept going on his journey. And it simply represented what we call the foreshadowing of the end of Jacob's journey, provided that he put God at the forefront of all he did. 
just because he had this dream and he had this amazing, you know, theophany experience with God, it didn't change his direction or his path. He kept going on the route he was on. You know, and that's an interesting part of life, right? He still had to journey to Haran. Why? Why? Why would you have to journey to Haran? You, you saw God. He told you he's going to bless you. He says, this place that I have given you, I'm going to bless you as a season. Okay, great. Well, he didn't know how that was going to happen, so he just said, I'm going to continue along my journey, and Lord, protect me as I do. And he still seemingly had to go backwards from where his grandfather had come. So what is this journey to Haran? The story of Jacob's journey to Haran has been likened by many biblical scholars to the story of every soul's descent to the physical world. So the rabbis look at this as though it's like your soul, who God, is, God has blessed you in your, your nefesh, in your soul, and he says, I'm going to send you to earth to become a human being, to inhabit a body. And so it's kind of the, it's likened to the story of, of, of your specific soul's descent to the physical world. And the soul, too, leaves behind the spiritual ideal of Beersheba and journeys to Haran. Literally, Haran. Does anyone know what that means in Hebrew? You all help me, you know? He's going to look it up on his phone. It means wrath, okay? Wrath. Haran literally means wrath. So your journey from Beersheba to wrath is a place of what? Lies. It's a place of deceptions. It's a struggle and hardship. A place in which material concerns consume one's days and nights. It saps our energy. It confuses our priorities. And all but obscures the purpose of which one has come there in the first place. How many of us have been caught up in this Haran? I would say that the church, a lot of, a lot of the church is caught up in Haran. They're, they're struggling with, with material concerns and, 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 and the material in life. I mean, legitimately, there's entire communities and churches that all they focus on is how God's giving you, is going to give you the material. How God's going to give you these major blessings and you're going to be like, you know, it's 100% about the material. It has nothing to do with God and the Spirit. That's a disaster. I mean, meanwhile, we who, who hardly, who basically, when I preach, I preach, you're going to struggle. But your spirit needs to be strengthened inside of that struggle. Because I believe that. I truly believe that we all will struggle. No matter if we're believers or not. I truly believe that. Because there's not a biblical case. There's zero biblical evidence that if you are a true follower of God that you will not have struggle. Read every story of every character in the scriptures and tell me they didn't struggle. That they just sat on top of the world. 
Look at the disciples. Those that are truly faithful. In fact, what happens is that that desire to be with God possesses them in such a way that they go out into the world and share it, and it's not popular. Therefore, what you think you're going to get as a result of it doesn't come your way. And you struggle. Now, does that mean that you're going to be poor if you believe in God? No. I'm a true believer that if you work hard at everything you do, it will come to you. There's lots of biblical evidence for that. Okay, sowing and reaping. Working very diligent at, the, at, at, at what you're doing. It will come to you. I mean, it, it, it's, a, it's a different way of looking at it, but I don't think that believing in God and following Him and praying three times a day and keeping the, the, the faith and having an enormous faith exempts you from struggle. In fact, I think it's going to exacerbate struggle. Why? Because the road is narrow. In a wide road, there's a lot of opportunity to be happy and find something and do whatever and be whoever you want. In a narrow road, it's a different world. Right? So it creates naturally a form of struggle. The world itself is haran. It's deception. And this is, the, this is the message within the message here, is that we are all in a journey to Haran. In this world of lies and deceptions and hardship and material concerns that consume us all day and night, that zaps our energy, it confuses us, it takes our priorities completely in the wrong direction, we have to see things a little different. We can't allow our purpose to be obscured. And our purpose, in essence, is what God is giving us. And I think each and every one of us has an opportunity to fall asleep in a place where God can reveal himself to us. And tell us what he requires. No matter your age, no matter your creed, no matter your, your, uh, your color, no matter your race, God is not, you know, obviously uh, prejudiced. So Yaakov comes to this place where God meets him and he calls it Beit El and he proceeds along his journey to a place that would create hardship. He proceeds on his journey to, create, to a place that would create hardship, that creates trial, that tests him for the next 20 years of his life. Not for a few months. This isn't a few months, guys. This is 20 years of his life that are going to be tested. Because God sees things in a totally different way and he, and he looks at life in a completely different way than we do. 
We want the moment where the McDonald's generation. We want to get through the drive-through, and we want to have our burger and our fries in, in three minutes or less. I don't know. This is time. God takes time on us to perfect us as we walk through this furnace called life. Jacob's father-in-law was a deceiver, much like Jacob was. Isn't that interesting? Levan deceives Yaakov. Yaakov deceives Yitzchak. He got a little bit of what he, what he sowed. You see, Jacob plotted with his mother to deceive his father in order to receive the blessing and the birthright of the family. And we can justify their actions by the understanding that God told Rivka that the older will serve the younger. But the fact still remains, they achieved this end as a result of deception. I mean, she dressed him up like it was Halloween. She put on furry, furry arms. She put him furry arms on him. She, you know, she made him... Made him feel like, smell like she probably rubbed uh, some nasty, you know, guts of an animal so that he smelled like a man versus like the powdery boy that he was with her, right? Because Esau was the manly man and he was more of the one that wanted to cook, you know, or dance. You see that commercial when the son says, I don't want to play football, Dad, I just want to dance. Like, that's the worst no one wants their son to come tell him that. That's why Esav, that's why Esav was going to get the right, okay? My son ever does that, it's going to be in, he's in totally in trouble. So here, he says to younger, but the fact still remains that they, they did it. But in like fashion, Levan deceives Jacob to get what he wanted from him. Isn't that interesting? You see, Yaakov could have been the best and the hardest working person in Levan's staff. And as a result, Levan wanted to maximize his outcomes through ensuring that Yaakov stayed around and helped with the work to be done. So, what did he do? He gave, he gave him Leah as opposed to the original deal, which was Rachel, and ensured that another seven years would happen. You know, so they made a deal. He says to his is, is basically his uncle. He says, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to stay around here for seven years and I'm going to work for that woman's hand in marriage. I mean, that must have been true dedication and love. Okay? He really loved this girl and dedicated to her. And so Levant says, okay, absolutely deal. Probably shakes his hand, fingers crossed behind his back. Um, and from Jacob's perspective, he was deceived. And in chapter 29, verse 25, he asked Levan why. Levan's response was that it was not practice to marry off the younger prior to the older. That was his response. That's not our practice, to marry off the younger before the older. A direct hit, if you will, to Jacob's retrieval of the birthright and the blessing. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? So he's, he's really hitting him right in, the, right, in the, right in the gut because he took the blessing from his brother, Esau. He's like, look, this isn't our practice. 
to marry off the, the younger versus the older. And it's not practice to give the, uh, the younger the birthright versus the older the birthright. Lavan justifies his actions and dishonorable conduct by emphasizing the importance of tradition in the community. Now, Levan most likely did not know that Jacob and Esau have rivalry, but Jacob certainly understood the underlying meaning that presented itself and did not reprove Levan for not informing him of the local tradition because of his own experience. He did not reprove him of that. Why? Because I think that lesson that his father-in-law gave him really hit home about what he had done to his father with his mother. He was sent to Haran to learn a lesson from God, and he knew that this was for me. Look what I had done. All part of the purification process, what he's going through to be purified, he's learning. And so he doesn't reprove. He doesn't reprove his father-in-law. You see, Laban, Levant could have told Yaakov, that Rachel was not available until Leah was married, but he chose not to because he had personal agenda to perform. And Haran, the expectation is that you will be lied to, you will be deceived, you'll have hardships come your way. That's, that's the expectation in Haran. But nonetheless, Yaakov's marriage to Leah and his experience in Haran can and should be seen as divine providence because through Leah, what happens? Something very important that no one really understands. Through Leah is born Levi and Yehuda. Levi and Judah are born through Leah. Their offspring become the two great institutions of the biblical period, the priesthood and the Davidic monarch. Rachel didn't bring the priesthood and the Davidic monarch. Leah did. So here we have a very interesting quandary. He's deceived by Levan. He's mad, he's irritated, but he realizes I can't reprove him because I did the same to my own father. And I see, and, and, I, and, and the birthright went to my father. I mean, the birthright went to me. It didn't go to my brother. And so as a result, I can't be mad at Levan for doing what he did. But as a result, God didn't allow Levan to do what he wanted to do, but used Leah, the firstborn, to have the birthright. Isn't that an even interesting thing? Leah gets the birthright in the kingdom. She gets the priesthood, she gets the Davidic monarch, she gets the Mashiach. Rachel doesn't get the Mashiach. Sometimes the worst things that happen to your life are, 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 are God. You just don't know that it's God, but that experience is God. God is doing that, He's moving. And if you're walking in the direction, if you're walking under the power of God, 
Even the struggles you go through, God's allowing you to have those struggles. Why? To strengthen you for, to have, so that you can chazak, chazak, so you can be strong. And not only be strong, but give and have what God has called you to have, to be who God has called you to be. That's the strength of it. You don't know what you don't know what is why you're going through what you're going through, but God does because why? He sees time infinitely. There is no time. It doesn't exist. He sees the entire motion picture. We're in the middle of the movie. He saw the end. He knows what's coming. So you don't know why things are happening the way they are. And it's funny because even when, even when Jacob's son, Yosef, has a dream, what does Jacob do in his, in his wisdom? What does Yaakov do in his wisdom? <clears throat> because he had dreams himself. He had experiences himself. So Yosef comes to him and says, Dad, I had a dream. The sun, the moon, the stars, they bowed to me. What does he do? He ponders it. He doesn't reprove him. He doesn't yell at him. The Bible literally says he ponders it. Why? Because Yaakov understands. He gets it. That God's doing something with this young man. And I don't know what it is. I don't know what that experience is. But guess what? That kid, that dreamer, had an amazingly, you know, difficult struggle of a life. But was God's hand on him? God plucked him out of the multitude of his own brothers and gave him a blessing that none of his brothers had. <coughs> you tell that message to the church today. The church doesn't want that message. They don't want, they don't want if you find God you're going to have maybe struggles. They want, to, they want to say, if you find God, you have all the things that you want in life. You paid your mortgage. I mean, this is ridiculous. Watch the, watch the TV. Watch what's going on in the church communities today. It's mind-blowing. It's sinful. But if you understand that God's moving in everything, this is a refining, this is a refining factory what we call life. It's refining us. Giving us the ability to, to see God and how he's moving in different ways if we reflect upon our own lives and our lessons. We learn. We learn. Selfishness has to die. Um, selflessness has to become a, a, a part of us. Right? We, we have to be selfless. You know, look what we've, you know, my, God put on my mom's heart this year about the, the 10 families that we're going to give, that we're all chipping in and giving to, to people in need. That, that's, that's a phenomenal feeling. I, I, stopped, I stopped and gave, I don't know if I stole this story, but there's a guy that's homeless that stands in the middle of the highway right off of Main Street in Akron, on 224. He stands there every day and in fact lives on the other side of that highway area down in a little gully and he's got all of his things there and I see him there all the time and he looks like the nicest kindest you know he, you know he just looks like a very sweet old man I mean he's probably 70s you know late mid 70s and just a really nice guy and if you look at him you, you think to yourself 
how did he have struggles? I mean, he doesn't even in the face look like he would be, you know, homeless. He, he looks like he would be like, a, you know, he owned a fishing boat and he, you know, brings fish in and sells them at the market. I mean, he looks like a really kind, nice guy. And so I, I stop at that light and I'll give, that, I'll give him money. So one day I gave him, you know, I, all I had was in my pocket, all I had was like a $20 bill, but I, I gave it to him anyway. And this car pulls up next to me and he says, he rolls his window down. He goes, you know that dude's been here, standing here for three and a half years? And I said, yeah. He said, well, he needs to go get a job, you know, and do all this other stuff. I said, look, bud. I said, life is a team sport. No one can do it alone. Not even the homeless. I said, if nobody's looking out for him, how's he going to do it? I said, did anyone ever look out for you? Did, did you get where you are because you were helped looked out after? And he goes, ah, and he rolls his window up, right? Well, that's the point about it, the struggling, right? God sees that struggle. We have to see it too and understand that there's a lesson within that struggle. But we won't if we, if we think the way the world thinks. If you think the way the world thinks, then you've got a major problem on your hands. You have to think how God thinks. Yes, I think it's terrible that, that homeless people stand on the side of the road and, and peddle for money. I think that's, it's terrible that they don't just go get jobs, but some of them can't. And their families have clearly abandoned them which is a disaster because you'd think if there's someone in your family that needs help that the family would come together and help the one who's in need no these these ones weren't helped they have no one to help them that's a sad story think like God and I'm not saying give away your life to these people I'm saying think like God and some of these guys are swindlers and they're deceivers and they make forty-five, fifty thousand dollars a year doing it Okay? But some of them are genuinely in need. Let's help them. Anyway, but in Haran, in the employ of Levan the deceiver, let's call him Levan the deceiver, not in the Holy Land, it's in the tents of learning. Haran, the world, is the tents of learning. That's where we learn. And Jacob's births, Jacob births the nations of Israel there. It's here that he marries and fathers 11 of the 12 sons who will become the 12 tribes of Israel. It's here. In the tents of learning is where he, where he fathered the tribes of Israel. Not in the Holy Land, not in Jerusalem, not in Beit El. Had Jacob remained in the Holy Land, his life would have had no significance to us today and someone else would have had to be chosen of God. One lesson is that we, too, achieve enduring significance only upon the descent into Haran. Only as a physical being invested within a physical body and inhabiting a physical environment can we understand the soul's purpose, which is to build 
a dwelling for God in the physical world. Jacob left his father's house in the Holy Land because his experience deceiving his father and brother drove him away. Alone with his thoughts and with his own guilt, he traveled back to where it all began to understand who he was and what he should become. He encountered God along the way, and he was treated poorly by his employer, and he was deceived by many. He was birthed the plan of God. He fought for everything that he received. Nothing was handed to him except for a promise. But it was his job to learn how to create an abode on this earth for God. We daily have experiences that God uses as lessons that enable us to learn what it truly takes to make a home for God in this earth. And sometimes it's important to go back to the beginning and understand where you came from in order to know where you are going. What this parasha helps us to do is see ourselves for who we have been and use that as a catalyst to propel us into the people that we should become. Buried within our, within our own experiences, both good and bad, and our choices, both good and bad, are the lessons that guide us to becoming a more perfect and holy person on the earth. As we stop and meditate on the expectations or the experiences God allows in our lives, we should grow wiser and more understanding and ultimately change. When in the carnal at Haran, we are on milk. But when in the spirit in the Holy Land, we do eat meat. In closing, James 1, verse 2 through 8. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. It's interesting that, that those people who doubt are considered double-minded and nothing will come their way. We cannot doubt God. When we ask of him, we must believe that he'll give us what is required. That's what James tells us. Amen. It is our duty to praise the master of all, to ascribe greatness to the author of creation, for he made us unlike the nations of the lands. He's not placed us like the families of the earth. He's not made our portion like theirs and our lot like all their multitudes. And we bend the knee and bow, acknowledge our thanks before the King over kings. The Holy One blessed is He. He stretches out heaven and establishes earth's foundations. And the seat of His glory is in the heavens above. And the presence of His power is in the most exalted heights. He's our God, there's none other. True is our King. There's nothing beside Him. As it is written in his Torah, you shall know this day and take to your heart that the Lord, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth below, there is none other. Amen. Stand for worship.